zone1radio.com. Hello listeners, welcome to Zone 1 Digest, the best of Zone 1 Radio, the Mayor of London funded community radio station for central London. I'm Stuart Hardy and this is where I create a patchwork of shows that I would have made myself if I had the time. This week, I thought I might as well begin with the routine appearance of In Good Taste, Zone 1 Radio's weekly food show. I want variety, but apparently In Good Taste persists with making awesome fun shows every week. In this one, they went to the BBC Good Food Show to talk to some local food businesses to investigate why local independent food shops seem to be disappearing. They also talked to Marissa Leaf, founder of Hubbub, that's H-U-B-B-U-B, a site designed to deliver food from your favourite local retailer straight to your door. Over to you In Good Taste, yet again. Please stop being brilliant so that I can include someone else next week. Facebook.com With more and more high street shops closing, it's more important than ever to shop locally. I'm here at Kensington Olympia at the BBC Good Food Show, a mecca for small independent food companies, to see some of the unique products which may soon become a thing of the past. So what's your name? My name's Farouk. And um, who do you represent today? A company called Cherry Tree in Wimbledon. And what do you think is important about supporting local shops? Um, just helping the community because we're, we're based in Wimbledon Park. It's a small community. We've got small community shops. And we're more of a residential area. So it's, it helps the local businesses there. What's your name, sir? Hi, I'm Adrian. I'm from Yum Yum Tree Fudge. Uh-huh. And where are you based? In Berriston, Edmund, Suffolk. Right. And so what's different about your fudge? Well, basically we use local produce. We use local grown uh, sugar, uh, British sugar and British butter. And we also use about 20% less sugar in our fudge, so they make it very soft and smooth. Fantastic. Thank you. So you're definitely a supporter of the whole small local food Certainly, yeah. People love that. Rob Morton, Morton's traditional taste. And uh, your business concentrates on poultry, does it? Yeah, we're all free-range poultry, all from the farm in Norfolk. Do you think it's important that we should keep this tradition of local businesses over larger franchises going? Because it seems there's less and less of it. You know, yeah, I do. yeah, I do. I mean, we're a small family farm. Um, we need the customers out there to, you know, to keep the farm going. So I think it's very important to, to secure local food where you can. Yeah, definitely. Can you tell me your name again? <laughs> My name is Giancarlo Caldesi. I've been in this country 38 years. Mm-hmm. I have two restaurants. Right. One in Melbourne, one in Bray. The one in Bray, we've got two AA Rosettes. We also have a cookery school. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the fact of fresh products and things like that is very important, actually. And Bray, which we are very sort of um, local to near the Fat Duck and the other restaurants. But I'm better than them, anyway. What we do, actually, we, we use... Um, the farmer down the road for partridges, pheasants, sometimes deer or rabbits. Anything the shoots we, 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 we buy, we do. Um, we also sorting out a new menu and a new plan to really be much more centralised or localised, if you like. And uh, we really are. So we're trying to go locally sourced sort of meat, which is at 30 miles, not further than yeah. London. You can't do any better. But unfortunately, being Italian, you can't really uh, be 100% because you need some Italian stuff to, you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. It's, it's, it's really... 
I think we should be much more sensible in doing some things. You use the, your vicinity like we use, we use London honey. And uh, things that are around you, other things you cannot do it really. It just cannot. No, it's, it's difficult. It is difficult. But, but if everybody puts, uh, you know, if everybody starts putting a, a 10 or 20 percent or 15 percent in, you look, you look around on 10 percent on 100,000 businesses, and then you think, my goodness, 10 percent. So other, other, other business will flourish because of your way of working. It's about a contribution. But you see that if people ever understand that the way you work, you influence your immediate area. Your immediate area responds to you and therefore will change automatically way of life. And that's what's important. But people don't get that because they're lazy. Everything is everything is brought to them in a packet. Hey, why do I have to bother, you see? So thank you very much, Claire. You are absolutely beautiful. Thank you. One company on a mission to save the high street is Hubbub, a food delivery service with a twist, bringing your favourite foods from local independent shops to your doorstep. In Good Taste spoke to Marissa Leaf, the founder, to find out what inspired her to set up Hubbub. I used to be a human rights lawyer and I was completely passionate about the work that I did. I really loved it, but working such long hours had implications on other areas of my life where I also really wanted to make a difference. So, for example, if you're working long hours and you don't leave chambers till 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, you don't have very many choices about where to buy food. And I rather felt that having spent every hour of my waking day (laughs) trying to make the world a better place, it grated to put my money in the hands of Tesco shareholders. And what I really wanted to do was to be able to spend my money with people who lived and worked in my community because I knew that the quality of the food that they sold would be so much better and because I knew that that would be a way to make sure that my money would go on being invested in the local community. And what kind of feedback have you had? What kind of response from the public? It's been amazing. We started at the end of 2008 with a pilot scheme. So that was just with two small shops. I couldn't even drive at the time, so I learned to drive in 10 days, and I started doing deliveries in my boyfriend's Mini. We were handing out leaflets at tube stations with friends of mine before and after work, just wearing butcher's aprons and trying to get people excited about the idea. And we had planned to only do it for six weeks and see what people thought of it. But it went so well, we built up such a strong, loyal following that we kept the idea ticking over until we built a proper website, hired vans and so on. And now we're a full-time team of six members of staff. We've got four vans, six drivers, and we're working with almost 40 independent shops. Could you just give us an idea of the range of shops which you use? Well, all sorts. So we we work with lots of local butchers, local greengrocers, local bakers. Uh, We work with an artisan chocolate maker. We work with a salmon smoker. Uh, We work with, as of last week, a guy who barbecues joints of beef. (laughs) Lots of brilliant delis from Italian delis to Moroccan delis, uh, more traditional French delis. Brilliant cheese shop in Highbury, La Fromagerie. So really all all sorts if there's a if there's a favorite independent shop that people have they often get in touch with us or with them and say you know i'd love to be able to use them more often and put us together and then it doesn't take very long before they've joined the the club too and how did you come up with the name hubbub 
Um, I spent a long time looking for names that hadn't been taken. <laughs> um, but Hubbub, for me, encapsulated two really important things. So one was this idea of a hub, um, you know, being a centre of lots of different things, a centre point of uh, lots of different shops um, and lots of different people and a community hub um, in that sense. But also the name and the word hubbub, meaning sort of lots of things going on, lots of diversity, lots of chatter, kind of conjured up the uh, the idea for me of a very vibrant, bustling community, um, which felt just right and just what we are. Zone1radio.com. You're listening to Zone One Digest, sponging off the hardworking staff of Zone One Radio and calling it work. I'm Stuart Hardy, and coming up next, we have an interview from London Arts, Zone One Radio's culture slot, in which a man who is very much an inspiration to us all, who coincidentally shares my name and looks exactly like me, and, well, yeah, it was me that did the interview, um, I went and spoke to Kate Smurthwaite, comedian and feminist campaigner, as she performed at a Question Time tweet-along night where people come together and watch some comedy, and afterwards watch Question Time and play the accompanying Question Time drinking game. Fun times and politics were had, so let's have a listen. It's interesting, I guess. I guess whatever it is, 50 years ago, um, maybe, yeah, about 50 years ago, in the, in the 60s anyway, um, Jermaine Greer and the female eunuch wrote, women have very little idea how much men hate them. And I think, these days I feel sort of like, thank you, the internet, we get the message. Like, I mean, not that, of course, it's a small minority of men, but, but they're pretty vocal on the internet. And these opinions obviously existed 50 years ago, but they were just kept under the surface. But now, thanks to anonymity, you know, every time I put a video up there, somebody writes, what, disgusting fat arms. And you're just like, whoa, you know, somebody was out there thinking that before and not voicing it. So in a way, I'm rather, I'd rather see it out there than at least we know what we're dealing with uh, in terms of uh, a sort of underlying culture of misogyny. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I feel I feel that that culture of misogyny is mostly within the world of stand-up, which I think is pretty appalling. Because people say that um, there aren't as many funny female comedians as there are male comedians. So what, what do you think about that general yeah, people, stereotype? Yeah, people say to me all the time, and I usually say, "Oh, really? And do you think that black people don't make quite such good dentists? Because it's about as it's about as meaningful as that. If you think that something about me over which I have no control makes me not as good at my job as somebody else." Um, I did a talk for Radio Four on Forethought um, about sexism and women in comedy and I think it's a horrific runaway problem I think that you know once upon a time sex is, uh, comedy was all about unpleasant stereotypes and it was all mother-in-law jokes and racist jokes and then we had this brilliant alternative comedy revolution and we threw all that away and we started using comedy for good as it were using comedy to criticize the government and to call out hypocrisy and there was this brilliant era of sort of like Ben Elton and these people who were there to sort of tell it like it was and and they were seen as edgy and controversial and now in a sort of desperate attempt to still be edgy you know there seems to be nowhere left to go with being edgy so people are sort of breaking into the past and so now now it's edgy to be racist and sexist again which is pretty depressing actually um, but it's totally worked for Frankie Boyle it's totally worked for Jimmy Carr these people have become successful by being inverted commas edgy which by any sort of real historic focus is actually just way out of date and horrifically old fashioned and inappropriate um, so I guess it must be time for another revolution you know we've had one before um, I'm all up for the next one I spend a lot of time waiting for a revolution that never comes but, but I'd still I mean even if it never comes I'd still rather be in this camp fighting the battle from this end I, like when I meet people at the other end of the spectrum and I see their attitudes and you know these attitudes pervade their whole lives I think 
I'd just rather live where I am, where we call people out on these things and where people are careful about these things. And But yeah, I think that even if we never win, it's still more fun to be on our side. So you, so you do believe that comedy plays a very strong role in politics then? Totally. Um, I mean, it's not even just that I believe that, it's just a, it's a scientific fact and I wish I could quote the exact journal and the issue and the edition that it comes out in, but unfortunately I haven't necessarily memorised them, but there is a, one of the really important uh, peer-reviewed journals of uh, research into psychology and they did this amazing experiment um, actually directly about misogyny and they, they gave these people a hundred statements that ranged from, you know, I really hate women to, you know, I think men and women's brains are wired differently, I think women might be better at certain housework jobs, blah, 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 blah. This whole like list of statements, and they ask people to, yes, I agree, no, I don't agree. Women should be equal in every respect. Women should be paid equally. All this way through, people just ticking, yes, I agree with that. Oh, not quite. Da, 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 da. You know, should women get maternity leave? This sort of thing. Um, and then um, half of the group were given uh, statements, which are just statements like women have a lower IQ, like kind of inverted commas, factual statements. And the other lot were told sexist jokes. Then they were asked to rebate themselves. And this, the jokes had more of an impact than the statements did. Um, so it's just a fact that stuff that makes you laugh influences your opinion more than stuff that doesn't make you laugh, uh, more than straightforward facts and whatever. And I think we see that because I think that we actually we know that although some of us do watch things like Question Time or whatever, um, ultimately um, a lot of people out there get their inverted commas news from Private Eye, from The Onion, from The Daily Show, from things like that. This is Song One Radio. You're listening to Zone One Digest, the best of Zone One Radio, curated by a lazy, hairy man who still lives with his parents. Hooray! And next up, we have a clip from Who's the Boss, the positive, inspirational, business-related fun show. I have a suggestion for Ian and Seppi, if they're listening. Have your logo be the two of you jumping in the air in front of a merry-go-round backdrop with a massive open-mouthed grins. That's how I'd market it. And, yeah, there's a reason I still live with my parents. Anyway, they interviewed Celia Gates, who came up with a way to apply ergonomic design to household products. And here she is to tell you how. Over to you, Who's the Boss? You're listening to Who's the Boss with Sebi Roshan and Ian Scott. This morning we've been talking about designing and prototyping your product. And we have a very special guest, Celia Gates, author, innovator and inventor. Inspired by a grandmother who suffered from osteoarthritis and struggled to lift saucepans, Celia applied ergonomic design to household products. She now speaks with Seppi about her experiences of going from design to product. Hi Celia, thank you for coming this morning to speak with me. Hi Seppi and hi to your listeners too, I'm delighted to be here. Oh wonderful. So, so Celia, what is a prototype? There's some confusion over what a prototype actually is. So a prototype is basically a mock-up or a model, a, a 3D representation of your idea. So it might be that it's a working prototype, which actually delivers the function but doesn't necessarily look like the actual product. Or it might be an aesthetical prototype that looks like the actual thing but doesn't actually work. And or indeed it's a, a working, fully functioning prototype that's pre-production. So it's basically the development of the idea at various stages. Now a prototype can be made of cereal boxes, it can be made of <laughs> plasticine and you know, things that you find around the house, or of course you can go to a proper prototyping development centre who can produce a fully functioning three-dimensional version of your idea. So, um, what did you find uh, most frustrating about the process of designing and prototyping? Um, what did I find most frustrating? Well, 
in reality, I guess for me, it's always speed. You know, I like things to happen tomorrow <laughs> or now <laughs> we, even. Unfortunately, um, yeah. <laughs> and of course, as you go through the, that evolution, that development, different stages take longer and longer. The more you get to that state of mass production of yep. optimization. So really, in the early days, where you are working with whatever it is, cereal packets, broom handles, polymorph, foam, clay, the quick, easy modeling tools, make lots quickly. Fail fast is my big advice. As soon as you've failed, you've got a positive result from which you can improve. Whilst you're not making a decision, you're not actually moving forward. So make lots of prototypes in the early stages where you can make things quickly, where you can make quick adjustments easily and cost-effectively. Because as you move through the stage of getting closer and closer to mass production, making a change becomes a much lengthier process. So it's important that you've got it right at the beginning before moving on to the bits where it becomes more costly and more time-consuming. And so what is it like when at the end of that whole process you see this product in front of you that you have designed looking gorgeous, ready for sale? Oh, well, um, the feeling is quite remarkable, I have to say. Um, Quite a personal, private feeling, if I'm honest with you. Um, I have caught myself in shops, standing proudly next to my product, hoping that random shoppers will notice that my photograph is on the box. I've never quite been brave enough to actually point that out to people, though I have photographed my products in situ, and... You sort of do feel as if you've, you know, sent your kids off to university or something. (laughs) Your children have moved on to the next level in life and you're letting them go to an extent. Um, So, yes, you know, I very much felt attached to my early baby as it developed and grew. And there is a mothering element that comes into that, the whole nurturing of the idea. At at the end of the day, if if you're not there to care for it and develop it and make sure it grows up to be a commercially successful product in its own entity, then it is going to wither and die. you're the creator, you're the, the patron of this idea as such, so you do have a responsibility to make it happen. But it's a fantastic feeling when you actually you know, walk into a stranger's house and see that they've got <laughs> your product in their kitchen. That's my pot. That's my saucepan. That's exactly. brilliant. Celia, thank you so much for these fantastic tips and insights and, and letting us understand what it's like to finally have that product on the shelf as many small businesses are wanting to do. So how can people get in touch with you? Well, Seppi, there's two things, actually. Um, First and foremost, when I um, started off on this journey of developing my ideas, I didn't really know what questions to even ask. There was such a huge void in front of me. And I looked around for that creative business book that sort of engaged with me and the way I was thinking and and the journey that I wanted to take my ideas on. And it wasn't out there, so I wrote it. (laughs) And, um, and And this year, actually, the book was shortlisted by the Chartered Management Institute for the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Book of the Year. congratulations. If anyone is developing a a business from an idea, I really do recommend they read it. Um, I personally reckon I'd have saved myself about 94 grand in costly mistakes. Um, I acquired the education the hard way, so other people don't have to. So the book's called From Brainwave to Business and is definitely worth reading. Mm -hmm. Um, Secondly, Seppi, on the 15th of November, I am delivering a free event as part of Global Entrepreneurship Week. It's called The Global Brainstorm. 
and it's really for anyone that wants to brainstorm their ideas and actually this is what a lot of this development is about it's about thinking about the idea and refining it on paper in cheap prototypes before you invest heavily in it so if anyone's at that stage do join us you can sign up at www.theglobalbrainstorm.com that's theglobalbrainstorm.com and I will look forward to welcoming people who want to brainstorm their ideas there You're listening to Zone 1 Digest, and you may have noticed something. Christmas is only a month and a half away. Have you bought everyone you know Christmas presents yet? If not, then put off the annual duty until Christmas Eve along with me, and listen to Vicky Ferron go to watch Claudia Winkleman turn on the Christmas lights in Marylebone, and afterwards, she gave Zone 1 Radio a very Claudia Winkleman reaction to it. I love Marlebone, I love Rays of Sunshine, so whatever they want me to do, I'll do. Have a lovely evening. Thank you. Bye. Zone One Radio, facebook.com slash Zone One Radio. That's about all we have time for this week on Zone One Digest. Hope it's been tasty and fun. I was going to include some of Matthew Layton's London GP show, but sadly, we don't have the time and... Just kidding. I am proud to present our last clip for this edition. Matthew Layton speaks to Caterham F1's Head of Communications, Tom Webb, from the Young Driver Test in Abu Dhabi about Renault and Caterham's announced partnership to revive the iconic Alpine brand. Thanks for listening and stay tuned to all the great content uploaded by others so I can sponge off them on this show on Zone1Radio.com. Over to you, Matthew. Hello, I'm Matthew, and this is London GP, your weekly dose of motorsport news and music on Zone One Radio, the Mayor of London-funded community radio station for central London. This week, a Caterham F1 special. In the week that Renault and Caterham announced a partnership to revive the iconic Alpine brand, we're going to speak to Caterham F1's Head of Communications, Tom Webb, from the Young Driver Test in Abu Dhabi. Tom, how are you, and how's the desert? The desert is a delightful place to be in uh, early November, particularly when I know first-hand experience just how cold uh, Europe is right now. What temperature is it outside at the moment? Uh, As I speak to you right now, we are at the end of day two uh, of the Young Driver Test in Abu Dhabi, um, and uh, it was, it's approximately 28 degrees centigrade right now. So, t-shirt and shorts? I wish. Team kit, I'm afraid, for me, which is... The reason I wanted to talk to you in particular was I've been sitting here scratching my head um, this week. Um, I get all your press releases, and the, one of them I got this week was about you forming a partnership with Renault, um, which is great that you're bringing the car back, but um, uh, I don't know. Is it a good time for you to be out in the desert and not in the thick of it over here? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's one way of putting it. So the announcement that we made with Renault is the combination of um, uh, of many, many months of hard work. And in basic terms, what we announced in Paris on Monday was that we formed a new partnership with Renault um, to build uh, sports cars um, under two brands. So we've helped Renault revive the Alpine name, which 
uh, if you live in France, would be called Alpine, but for those of us um, uh, who speak English, it's Alpine. Um, and uh, that's a name that to petrol heads means an awful lot. It's an iconic French sports car brand and one that has been uh, very, very warmly received on the news of its return. For us, it means that Caterham Cars will be building um, a still relatively low volume, but compared to the number of cars that Caterham currently produces, a dramatically increased number of, of cars that will be made and sold around the world. Um, and, and it gives the, the car company that we bought last year a chance to go from being a small niche, very well-respected and much-loved car company, but one that was... Um, but that was a very, very low volume, so one that, that can actually be truly benefit from the Formula One platform that the team has to help promote it. So we haven't started talking in any detail about what the cars will look like or what they're going to be, because um, the, the, that, that process will start over the next um, coming months. But um, it takes our Formula One team from being a, uh, a small part of the Formula One circus to, to joining the ranks of the manufacturers, and uh, we won't see the, um, the, 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 the results of that really for, for at least a couple of years. But um, the boss of our team, Tony Fernandez, said that when he started um, the Formula One team, his dream was that he wanted to be a motor manufacturer. And if you look at McLaren, McLaren started out as a pure racing team in the 60s and is now one of the most respected technological brands on the planet. They make a range of sports cars themselves. They have a championship-winning Formula One team, um, and they apply their technological know-how to a whole range of different industries. And uh, while we're not trying to copy what McLaren do, if we could emulate even one-tenth of their success, then we'd be doing extremely well. And the announcement with, pa with, with Renault in Paris was the first step in that process.